Let's start with a basic definition of shame, and then we'll expand to a more, uh, more theological or biblical basis of shame and a certain kind of shame that we'll talk about because shame manifests itself in different ways on different levels. And so um, um, a basic definition is before you there. And shame is the painful emotion caused by a consciousness of guilt or shortcoming or impropriety. The painful emotion caused by a consciousness of guilt or shortcoming or impropriety. Now, if you want to talk about, I know we talk about the birth of the blues, right? Let's talk about the birth of shame. And the birth of shame is located in the Bible uh, in basically uh, the, in the book of Genesis. Uh, and it really takes place in chapter 3, but we find this statement in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, verse 25, about Adam and Eve as, as uh, a representative for parents and and we know that they were created by God and, and that God created Adam and that, that he created Eve out of her and that they were together in this pristine environment where there was no corruption, no sin, no, no, uh, no craziness, right? And uh, uh, they were put there to live in fellowship with God and to enjoy company of, the company of one another. And, and uh, it says this at the end of, of chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Now, that talks about the fact that they were naked and they felt no shame. And just, the, on, just plain reading means that they were not ashamed of being naked. But I think there's a deeper implication there. I think it has something to do with the fact that they felt no shame on any level about anything regarding their humanity, who they were. And certainly being naked, but that's a symbol and becomes later on a symbol of, of shame that does emerge in their midst because all of a sudden they see themselves and they desire to clothe themselves. I mean, golly, it's just the two of them. It's like, what's the big deal? But there's something about shame. Shame does some interesting things. And so what happens is it, we go, we, we know the story, right? And that they ultimately, God says, don't eat of that tree. Eat of, you got all the other ones. Isn't there something, something that God gives you all these other options, but just like, no, I, I want that one. It reminds me of Max. And um, the, the big line is, no, not that one, that one. And I have on my, I, you know, I'll tell you how I got my big screen TV through uh, my brother-in-law's Best Buy warranty, right? But there are these little fingerprints all along the bottom of my TV <laughs> because when we were looking at the YouTubes that he watches, and he's got these basketball videos he watches of these kids playing basketball and stuff, and he'll say, he'll go up and say, no, not that one, that one, not this one, this one, you know, and, he'll be, and he'll be touching the little ones, the little, you know. And so God says, don't eat that one, eat this one. We said, no, I don't want those. I want this one. And that's what happened. They, they wanted the one they wanted. And so what what happens is that, they, you know, the serpent who basically emerges as a personification of, of the devil, if you will, uh, beguiles them. He tricks them. Or, well, it's not really trickery. He just, just kind of seduces Eve into doing it, and then she seduces Adam into doing it. See how you this is always getting the brothers into trouble. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. And uh, so they, they mess up. They sin. And so in the th- third chapter... Uh, they, they've sinned. All of a sudden, there's an awareness of the fact that, wow, we're naked. We're uncovered. We're unclothed. There's something now about us that we'd rather conceal. There's some things about us that now, now we have potential secrets to hide. Now we're, we're naked, and we, we are not naked and not ashamed. We are ashamed. So it says in the man and the wife. And so they're, they're, they're in that environment. They're, they, they're trying to cover their shame, right? They're trying to cover their nakedness. And then... It says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. 
and they hid from the Lord. God, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And it goes on, it says, so the Lord God called out to man and said to him, and you know there's a degree of figurativeness to this in the sense that God is omnipresent, and so God is not necessarily hanging up somewhere behind the latest cloud, but it, it, it's, it's representative of, of, of what happens as far as their estrangement from God and God in a essence seeking them out, but them trying to, can you really hide from God, right? And so the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? That's obviously a rhetorical question, right? Because God knows where he is. Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You're afraid because you're naked before the creator of the universe who made you, and you hide. You try to hide from God. Really? I mean, that's something that's really even doable, right? And, so, and then God asked, he said, who told you? That you were naked. Did you eat from the <laughs> did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did you, you tell your kids, did you do what I told you not to do? Did, did you take my car when I wasn't when I wasn't here? Because <laughs> there's some there's a dent on the side that I don't put didn't put in it. Did you do that? And so basically busted, right? Who told you you were naked? The birth of shame. All of a sudden, because of sin, all of a sudden, because of his, or their disobedience to God, all of a sudden, they're dealing with this emotion of shame. They, Adam and Eve, discover shame. They don't, they don't invent it, but they discover it. It emerges here, and, and guess what? It's appropriate in this sense. God says, what is it that you've done? Again, a rhetorical question, but... God knew full well what they they had done. They had eaten from the tree of good and evil. They were commanded not to eat from that tree. They disobeyed God. And so they were shame's first recipients, and shame was altogether appropriate for them. They were aware of their nakedness. (laughs) I said naked. I said, I tried to say naked, but I'm I'm from South Central. (laughs) And they were ashamed. And they're ashamed because of their sin. They're ashamed because they know you, you were scared of your mother, your father, because you knew you were in trouble. You know that you had disobeyed. You had done something. And it's, right, it's, it's a rightful shame in this case because they had committed sin. Shame in its essence, when it works properly in, in certain contexts, is kind of like pain. I don't like physical pain, but I'm grateful that when I stuck that steak knife in my hand week before last, it's got my stitches out this week. I'm glad that it hurt so that I did, did keep pushing. And be out the other side, you know. And I'd be a right-handed piano player from now on, right? I'm, I'm grateful for pain that reminds you, that lets you know that something's wrong. Pain that alerts you to, to, to something that needs to be corrected, something that needs to be healed, right? And shame is, is, is somewhat like that. The initial impulse of shame, when we've sinned, when we're wrong, when we've made mistakes, when we've done silly things, is that that initial shame alerts us to the fact that I need to get this right. I need to do something about it. I need to change. Their shame was deserved. But there, it, it gave rise to the proliferation of shame that will go forward in the, go forward in the human family in ways that, that are way beyond this, in ways that are not... It's like it's the difference between pain that lets you know that you've hurt yourself and fibromyalgia or some disease that you, where you're just hurting all the time for no reason and nobody knows why. You're just hurting because your nerves are tender or something weird is going on in your body, but, you know, those pain, don't you hate it? It's kind of like, there's a couple things like your car, you know, when you take your... Your car is making a noise and you take it to the mechanic and it doesn't make the noise. 
and you can't get it to make the noise, and so I just got to live with this. Or your electronic item, and those are the worst now because they don't even fix stuff no more. They just throw it away, you know, and whatever it is. Because I had a, my, my, my phone, I had a replacement, warranty replacement, and this phone, the haptics, which is the, 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 the sensation that when you're pressing the button that it's really moving and it's a total, it's a total illusion. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting how they deceive you. But it, like every afternoon, it stops working for a, few, for a couple hours, and then it goes back. And so I went and tried to, and I said to myself, I said, if I go to the Genius Bar, I know what's going to happen at the Apple Store. It's going to work perfectly. I said, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with this phone. And I'm going to say, no, but it doesn't work like 25% of the time. And they say, well, we're sorry. We can't do anything. Your car, you know, your transmission is like, oh, and then you go to the store, it's just smooth as silk. You know, or your body, when you have something, you know, you have a symptom or something, you go to the doctor and say, well, we don't really see anything, but I'm, this is happening and I'm feeling this and I'm, my heart is, no, your heart is fine, you know. So, so uh, uh, shame has its rightful place and it, it can lead us to the place of getting healing, the place of getting help. But the, the problem with it is that it, 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 it begins a series of, of things in our lives that take us in some different directions. In other words, it's like this. Notice this in, in the case of Adam and Eve. Uh, and someone observed this. Shame, number one, causes, up to cover, causes us to cover up our mess through inadequate means. Fig leaves, really? <laughs> you know, I could just see Adam and Eve out there. And, and, you know, Adam, you know, and Eve is looking at all these leaves on the ground. She says, Adam, I'm tired of picking up your clothes. <laughs> You know, I mean, leaves, really, come on. I mean, and they, I mean, come on, they're, they're like pretty new human beings, you know, so they don't have, you know, they don't have like sewing machines. So they, they so, you know, so that's really going to do something, right? You know, cover, cover you up, right? Inadequate means that in life, isn't it true that shame drives us to do a lot of, try a lot of things to try to cover our failure and our mistakes or our perception of who we are, our shame through ways that are totally inadequate that actually do not work. And then shame causes us to seek refuge in ridiculous places. It's like God made the trees. You're in his garden, right? Won't you stay? Stay in my garden. Remember that? You stay in my garden. You live here. But we're hiding. It's like, it's like your kid trying to hide from you in your house. You know? It's like totally ridiculous. And shame then causes us, and this is probably the, 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 the most challenging one, to run from the person that we should run to, and that's God. We ought, to run, we ought to run to God whenever we, when we fail, when we're hurting, when, we, when, we, when we've sinned, when we've made a mistake, when, we are, when we've made a mess of our lives, when, every, when all, everything comes crashing down upon us. We should always, the impulse of, is always to run to God for comfort, run to God for understanding, run to God for help, run to God for healing. But, but shame makes us do the opposite, and it's totally counterintuitive to what we should do if we understood the Scripture, if we understood our relationship with God. We run away from God. We want, run away from the very one who can help us. We run away from the very one who really can heal us, the very one who can take our shame and do something about it and put us in a better place. But we run from him, and we cut ourselves off. We hide from him. And, and it's like, he says, you know, remember the sermon a few weeks ago, you can run, but you can't hide. So there's this appropriate shame and there's inappropriate shame. The shame that Adam and Eve have brought upon themselves, that's appropriate in that moment. But it will lead to some very inappropriate places. In the Bible, you, talk, you, you read the story of Israel beginning from basically the Pentateuch going all the way, which is the first five books of the Bible, going all the way into, uh, into the prophetic books. And Israel as a nation, as God's people that are called out and chosen, as God calls Abraham and sets him apart, and, and uh, the people that, that he, he calls out, and they, they end up in slavery in Egypt, right? And, and he raises up Moses to be a deliverer for them. And Moses goes and takes them out, you know. 
and uh, leads them forward, and they're out there wandering in the wilderness, and God's trying to bring them into this place, right? And uh, they, have, they, they, they exhibit this pattern of just messing up. I don't know any other, There's no better way to say it. And so that doesn't sound like theological language. Oh, it's theological. They, they, have, a, a, they have a distinct pattern and a habit of messing up. Uh, when they're under Moses in the wilderness, God, you know, they, they come to certain challenges. God blesses them and helps them. You know, for instance, you know, uh, it leads them across the Red Sea. They get across the Red Sea, and then some of them are looking back. Uh, it, we, we liked it better back there. Oh, you like being a slave and making bricks without straw, right, and having no, no rights and owning that. You like that, huh? Say, uh, well, it's better than this because now we have to try harder, you know. Uh, they go forward and, and uh, 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 you know, they, God has to feed them. And so, you know, he gives them this stuff called manna. Um, they start a, uh, a hamburger stand, call it, what is it? <laughs> Some, sometimes I eat, I've eaten food certain places and I ask the question, what is it? But, you know, he gives them this manna and like, they don't have to like, they don't have to like farm. They don't have to till the soil. They don't have to go out and pick it. They don't have to clean it. I had some organic uh, some organic sh- chard this week, man. That stuff, there was so much dirt. I was like, man, I put this in the washing machine. <laughs> put that in the, and put a little rinse cycle in there. But you know, they didn't have to do that. All they had to go out and just get this stuff. And, they, and God said, don't store it. I'm going to get every, there'll be enough. You give us this day our daily bread, right? And they said, man, this manna, you know, it's like you know, whatever kind of macaroni or whatever kind of pizza, whatever, the meatless pizza. Whatever it was, whatever this stuff was, I don't know, celestial oatmeal, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but they, you didn't have to do anything for it. And, like, they're out in the wilderness. It's like, there's not like, it's not like any herds of cows walking around anywhere, you know. And, but after a while, it's like, oh, man, that's all we get to eat, this stupid manna, you know. And God said, okay, all right, here we go. You know, I'll give you all some, y'all want some chicken? <laughs> it's called quail. <laughs> I'll give you all some, I'll give you some yard bird. And God gave him so much quail. But every, every, at every turn, but it got worse than that. That was, you know, because God br- brings them to, the, to, you know, up to the edge of the promised land, you know, and they, they uh, uh, basically, uh, there are issues about, you know, faith to conquer, to go in. But then once they get established as a nation, as a people, they have this distinct pattern of reverting to idolatry, reverting to things that God had called them out of. They have these... God wanted to be their king, but they wanted a king. So God says, as a concession, he gives them a king. And you read in the book of First and Second Kings, guess what those two books are about? Uh, duh. It's like the book of Numbers is about, yeah. And the book of Exodus is about the, the, a movie? No, yeah, about, about Exodus. Uh, and so, you know, they, they have this problem, and they just keep all these kings, most of them, There'll always be this little description of what they did, and at the end it's like, but they didn't fully please the Lord because they didn't take down the high places, which is like, it's like, it's crazy stuff. Like, we're in a church. It's like, you come in here, and I've got like some altars of some strange uh, idol, and I've got some strange statue, and I've got some incense going on, and we're into some real weird stuff. And they would bring that stuff right into the temple, right into the, the company of God's people. And, that, and so in the prophets, when you read the prophets in the Old Testament, some of you wonder why stuff seems so harsh, because God is like challenging them. And he's oftentimes pronouncing shame upon his people because they're behaving shamefully. Yes. Right? Shameful acts. Shame on the name of God. Shame because God has done so much for them. And, try, and shame because God wants so much for them. Sometimes it's a shame because God wants so much for you and desires so, so many good things for you. And we are sometimes 
unwilling. Remember when Jesus prayed there over Jerusalem in one of the gospel accounts uh, upon the triumphal, triumphal entry, and he, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, wow, I, I wanted to gather you all. You guys, like, like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you guys weren't willing. And so Israel goes to this thing, and so there's this shame that's pronounced on Israel, and Israel deals with national shame, and, 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 and shame is a people. And it's in the Bible, and it's appropriate. But shame can go some other ways. Now, now shame, some of our shame, again, is, is deserved. The shame you might have had for how you behaved when you were out of control before you came to Christ there was a place where that had a function in your life, and it, it had a role, and it was, not, it, it was not unreasonable. There are some things we've all done that, in one sense, we should be ashamed of. And, you know, your mom will tell you, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And some of you took that too literally and took it too far. But, you know, before we became a Christian, or sometimes some of the things we've done as Christians when we have been disobedient, when we've been willfully rebellious against God. But the kind of shame that I want to address this morning goes beyond that. It's probably more prevalent than that. And it's described by Lewis Smeeds, who was a former professor at Fuller Seminary. I think he's passed on now. But he defines shame this way. Let me see if I can find it. There it is. Shame is a vague, undefined heaviness that presses on our spirit, dampens our gratitude for the goodness of life, and slackens the free flow of joy. Now, now we're getting into an area where shame, the shame that we're talking about is not just um, the shame that is the normal consequence of shameful behavior. But shame that is something that weighs upon us. Somebody said that shame drives you on a hunting expedition in, into your past, causing you to scrutinize everything you've ever done wrong, building a case against you like an aggressive prosecutor in a court of law. So imagine, I'm not talking about the shame that Adam and Eve felt then because they had uh, uh, transgressed God's commandment and felt the need to hide from him. I'm not talking about that shame this morning. I'm not talking about the shame, that, the rightful shame we feel, feel when we've really wronged somebody that we love and we care about and we should be ashamed of those kinds of actions. But I'm talking about the kind of shame that many of us are carrying despite the fact that we've confessed our sins to God, we've asked for and received his forgiveness. We're Christians and we're trying to live for God, but there is a, there's a shame that has invaded many of our lives that basically seeks to set up this wall of shame in our lives. Okay? And I'm talking about the shame we experience after we've come to Christ for forgiveness. When we have responded biblically in response to our sins and our failures, even as believers, 1 John 1, 9, I think there it is, says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What part, about, what part of forgiveness don't we understand? When our shame is rooted in other forms, and this is where it becomes... A greater problem still when it's rooted in other forms of inferiority or rejections, especially in things beyond our control. This wall of shame that I'm talking about, it blocks two ways. First of all, it keeps you inside a certain confined space. It keeps you inside the small world of your own shame and your own perception of your shamefulness. So you're bound, you're preoccupied with your past. You're preoccupied with your failings. And within the confines of this, 
this walled space, you try as well to fabricate coverings and to, to devise ways to hide your pain, ways to make yourself feel better in the midst of your captivity. Keeps us inside. But the wall does something else. The wall of shame does something else in our lives. And that is this, that it, it blocks something from the outside that we need to get on the inside. And what it blocks is the grace of God. It blocks grace and it blocks the full flow of God's love in our lives. It keeps the grace of God that has been given to us. I can say it has been lavished on us by God through Christ. It keeps that from, from having its full impact, from really, from really arriving and really, really, really uh, manifesting in our lives in a way that, that would, 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 would work the transformation and the blessing and the change that we seek. It, it keeps the love of God. It keeps us from realizing the full effect of God's love. Because while God has declared your sin debt paid and done with, right? When you're inside that wall, you don't, you don't hear that verdict. You just continue to hear that guilty verdict. And the v- guilty verdict says, look what you did. Shame is a sense that you're inadequate. That you're wrong. That you fail. That you're unclean. That you're not right. That something is wrong with you. And that sense allows shame and the enemy of our souls to keep us captive. And it allows people around us to hold us captives. It allows the enemy to hold whatever we've done and whatever our past is, whether forgiven or not, whether forsaken or not, whether it was 20 or 50 or 60 years ago, to to hold that over our heads because you know his other name is the accuser of the brethren, right? And so, yes, we compare ourselves with others and we feel less than human. We feel less than worthy because we're living under, we're living behind this wall of shame. Now, I know there are people in, in our society who know no shame and they should be ashamed of some of their actions and some of their words and some of their behavior. But there are a whole lot of us that are Christians that have received the gift of forgiveness and have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And we're walking around with our head bowed down and we're walking around with a big question mark over our heads because, because of this issue of shame. And we can say this one thing, and we can say it with certainty, of Jesus. He did not come to shame us because he did not come to blame us right he didn't come to shame us because he didn't come to blame us there's this verse and we were looking at it in bible study over the last few weeks ago when we were finishing up second corinthians and uh and and paul writes this in um second corinthians the seventh chapter he says and he's talking to the corinthians about his relationship with them and the fact that he's going in on them a little bit to shame them on some of their behavior, but he's, but then he kind of backs away a little bit because he's not really trying to shame them for the sake of shaming them. He's just trying to make them accountable so that he can help them to get their act together and do the right thing and to respond to him properly and to respond to God properly. And he says, he talks about the fact that, it, you know, if he has to grieve them a little bit in the short term, he will so that in the long term they won't be grieved. And so he says for godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. It, and, and so, repentance, it's one thing to know when, you, when you're wrong and when you've made a mistake, when you've when you failed, it's one thing to, to realize that, to feel, feel that jab of, of, of conviction, and I hope you do, I hope that you know, you're not running around cussing people out and saying, you know, whatever. 
I hope you're not running around, you know, just, you know, stealing stuff and doing a bunch of crazy stuff and say, well, hey, you know, it, 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 you know it's all good because uh, I'm a Christian. You know, you feel that godly sorrow, godly grief. Paul, Paul engages him. He says, you guys, you guys ought to stop sinning. Yeah. But he says, that, that's a good thing. It produces repentance. What is repentance? Change of mind that leads to change of life. But, but, and that leads to salvation. And look what he says, without regret. But he says, worldly grief produces death. And I believe that worldly grief, to a great extent, really consists of this kind of shame that we're talking about this morning. It's a shame. Paul can shame them. He can grieve them in the short term, realizing that, yeah, I need to get right with God. But worldly grief says, it's, it's not that you did wrong, you are wrong. It's not that your behavior is unacceptable. You are unacceptable. It's not like what you did was no good, but you are no good. You are, you are a loser and there's no redemption. There's really no healing for you. You may as well go on and do what, you, what you're doing because there's no hope for you. But I remember what Jesus said, and you, we love John 3.16. And in John 3.16, Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, uh, God loved the world after this manner that he gave his only son that whoever uh, would believe in him should not perish but, but live forever, have eternal life. But we don't often read John 3.17. And it gives us the heart of Jesus regarding his people, the heart of Jesus regarding, regarding issues of sin and forgiveness and shame. And he says this, that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might, but to save the world through him. He didn't send Jesus to condemn us, and so he certainly didn't send Jesus to shame us, not to shame us, but to heal us, to forgive us. What good is it for anybody who's been forgiven to continue to live in shame? Jesus Christ bore our shame. We talked about it in the context of Holy Week. We talk about the fact that, 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 that and, and Paul, again, in the Corinthian letters, makes big of this because he comes to them in weakness and humility and as a regular person, not trying to vaunt his credentials and not with business cards that say the high holy apostle who's large and in charge, I'm here to take, you know, take over. He comes to them, he works among them, he works for a living, he doesn't take their money, he comes to serve them, and they still kind of mistreat him and misunderstand him and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, don't, don't, you know, they, they want it, they're more interested in the guy that the Apollos is more flashy and, and, and what have you. But Paul introduces this idea of the, 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 the scandal, and we talked about this last week, or the offense of the cross, the fact of the cross. There's a shame related to the cross. That's why a lot of people can't deal with the idea of, 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 of a cruciform faith or a cruciform idea of, of Christ, the fact that uh, a faith that basically looks like the contours of Christ dying on the cross. The idea of Christ dying on the cross is, is an idea of shame for a lot of people. In the Greco-Roman world in the first century, it was shameful because it's like, it's one thing to just execute somebody, but the cross is when you executed somebody and you did it with relish and you did it, you put him up on, you hung them up on this thing before people, before the crowd, and you did it in a way that totally humiliated them, and it had this historical meaning that it was, it was, it was, it was a curse associated with, with, with the cross. And so you took the Son of God who, who came and who did nothing but love people and heal people and help people and came to save people, and you take him and you embarrass him, you put a crown of thorns on him, you lead him up this road, and you put him up on this thing out in the bright sun, and, you, and, and everybody watches him die, and everybody walks by and says, wow, that's a low-down, dirty shame. What he must have did. The shame, the scandal, the offense. It's just because it's shameful. It's the most shameful way of dying. But there's something in there. There's something in this. He wasn't just executed. He wasn't just mocked, which is shamed. He wasn't just executed, which is shamed. He wasn't just derided, which was shame. He wasn't just scorned, which is shame. He wasn't hung up there virtually naked, which was shame, right? He wasn't hung up on the cross and a spear in his side. That shame, right? 
what he was doing, do you get this? He was enduring shame for us. Everything that he did, he did in our place and he did it on our behalf to spare us from the same thing, to free us from the same thing. And so Christ endured shame for us so that we might be freed from shame. And so if we live in shame as Christians, then we're, we're doing a disservice to the gospel because yeah. Jesus died to deliver you. His shame became, became your gain, if you will. Yes. He endured shame for us so that we would be freed from shame. And God cares about your shame. Yes. That's why Jesus took it on himself. Jesus bore our shame when he bore, when he dealt with the root cause of our shame because it really does all originate in sin. Sin brings shame. And not only does sin cause us to feel shame, but the issue of sin in among human beings causes us to, uh, causes us to, to work shame on each other and to, and to make other people feel ashamed and, to, and to, to really pile on people when they're suffering from shame because it makes us feel better. And so everything we do as people, it's infected with this virus of shame. We're shamed, Right? And so we, in turn, seek to project that shame on other people. But Jesus didn't project any shame on anybody else. Because how, let me ask you this, looking at Jesus, how do you shame someone, talking about shaming Jesus, who's never done anything shameful? Right? So he bore our shame. Remember when you were a kid, some of you say, it's been a long time. You know, if we're not careful as parents, we... We rub our children's faces in their mistakes. I'm sure that little Johnny, when, you, when you're a preacher, you always have to refer to the, as little Johnny or little Susie. If, you know, I, I'm sure that your, your kid, when they knocked over the glass, I'm sure they knew that they had spilled the milk. But you know, you know we, have to, we have to rub it in. Sometimes the seeds of that kind of chronic shame in our lives come, comes from that shaming that we do as parents for little things that really sometimes kids make mistakes. You know, because I'm, you know, I'm an adult, and when I, 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 I break, like I broke a glass, you know, in the kitchen. I chipped a plate the other day. In fact, my wife didn't like, she didn't like, you know, she said, well, we got a lot of those plates. We'll put that one on the bottom. Yeah. I, you know, like she said, you, you will never wash dishes again. I would be, thank you. <laughs> but you know, your, your kid knows when, they've made, when their little hand is, has knocked over uh, uh, the glass and, 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 they're, and they're the ones whose chocolate milk is on the table and they can't drink. But you know, you know how we rub their faces in their mistakes. We deride them. We threaten them sometimes with consequences that are far beyond the scope and the value of their behavior, far beyond the, the offense. You know, you knocked your milk over. What? What kind of kid are you? Oh, that's, you're not going to watch TV for three years. You know how we do. Look, look, I remember when I was in elementary school, and you said, how can you remember that far back? I remember, I, and I did something, and it, it couldn't have been bad because I never did anything real bad when I was in elementary school. I was a good kid. But I had these three bad years, and I had these three teachers in a row. It was at, it was at Town Avenue Elementary, which is now in Carson, right across. Yeah, right, and I, I pass by all the time, and I have these twinges of shame. And I don't remember what I did, but I did something. And I remember the teacher, she, she, she was just really trying to shame me. And she said, she said, you, you know, this is going to go in your cum file. Your cumulative file is your, your school record that teachers write up every year. And, and she said, it's going to follow you for the rest of your life. And I was like, wow. I realized when I bought my house a number of years back that I had to, just, I had to submit a, a, a thing so they could read my CUME file. I didn't realize the last time, couple times I got a job that they, I, I had to submit a, 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 a form. I had to sign off so they could read my CUME from third grade. 
I didn't realize when y'all asked me to be, let, when they let me be pastor, they, they said, we got to see your cumes. That was obviously false, but just an idea just to shame you. And, you know, we, we, we do all kinds of things. We shame children. We, we, you know, and I realize sometimes when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to do discipline with kids and stuff. But it said, it was gonna, she said it's going to follow you for the rest of your life. And it, and it didn't. And I'm glad that's a lie. But it was, meant to invoke, it was meant to invoke fear and shame. But there are other things we say to our kids that really have followed them. The things we say more than the things that are written about them in somebody's file that follow you all of your life. I remember a couple of things my dad said to me that I really, I, I took me some years and I find that there are ways in my life that I still respond to those things. Yeah. Because it, and it goes back to little things that we do as children, little mistakes that we make, little acts that, that take place. And the word is always this, look what you did. Look what you did. Look what you did. Look at the mess you made. Oh, you know, look at you. And then it gets to stuff like, look at you, you're too fat. Look at you, you're too skinny. I, I got it on both ends. When I was seven years old, I was like really skinny. I was a little kid. He said, really? And I remember my, my mother said, you too pole. And my mother was from Texas. Because okay? they thought that being kind of on the heavy side was like, you know, some kind of virtue. And so they read my brother, they derided him his whole life because he was, he was real skinny and he didn't like to eat. And they, had to, they would try to force feed him and stuff. So I came on the scene. I was a chubby, I was a fat baby and I liked to eat. But then I was like, we were a child, I was, so I was too pole. You know, about five, six years later, that, that, that was not the issue anymore, right? <laughs> you know, you're too fat, right? You're too skinny. You, you dress funny. You, 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 your feet's too big. I don't know. You, you know and, and, and within within certain ethnic groups and within the African-American diaspora, um, the African diaspora in America, they have this thing, you know, you're too light. You're too dark. Really light-skinned people take guff from other people and really, you know, and the people are derisive towards people who are silly stuff. But it's, what does it do? Basically, it makes people ashamed of who they are, right? My son was bullied for that when he was in junior high. You look funny. You dress funny. And so now it's played out to where kids in school have to wear tennis shoes that cost $150 so they don't get beat up because they shame each other about the labels that they wear. All kinds of ridiculous stuff. And it goes back to look what you did. Look what you don't have. Look at your deficiency. Look at what you missed. And if we're trying not to shame somebody, we would recall the words of Scripture that say that, that love uh, covers a multitude of sins. And if, we, if we were trying to, to not shame people, we'd be trying to help people clean up their messes, right? And help people and quietly excusing infractions and, and overlooking deficiencies and overlooking problems and, and, and correcting things and just moving on. But it's always, no, look what you did. But I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus bore my shame on the cross. Because the gospel screams this message to you and I. In contrast to this universal shame and condemnation that says, look what you did. Father God takes the focus off of us altogether. And what he says is this, no, don't look what you did. Look what he did. Look at what Jesus did. Look at, John the Baptist put it like this when he saw Jesus walking up. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at him. Look at that guy. He's the one. Look how he bore our shame. Look how he forgives our sins. Look how he heals and transforms us. Look at the depth of his love as demonstrated by the extent of his sacrifice. Look at what he did. There's no shame in his game. 
There was no shame driving Jesus as a child, as a young man. There was no unwholesome compulsion in him him resulting from his past. The scripture says of Jesus that he was without sin. Therefore, he had nothing to be ashamed of, and he wasn't ashamed of anything. He was the only one in human flesh ever who had never failed. He had nothing whatsoever, anywhere in his life, to be ashamed of. And yet, and still, he willingly took on himself our shame. And he allowed himself to be shamed. And to be ashamed and to be abused and to be misused and to take in his body to absorb all of the shame that rightfully was ours and all of the shame that rightfully isn't ours but the devil would try to, to inflict upon us. He bore it on the cross. So we're told in the New Testament, aren't we, to look to Jesus. In Hebrews 1, the writer says, what you do in running this race, you, you lay aside every, every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and and you run the race with patience, what you do is you look to Jesus. He's the author and finisher of your faith. You put your eyes on him. You get your eyes off yourself. Quit looking at your own mistakes. Quit looking at your past. Sometimes we are too introspective for our own good. They call it navel-gazing. When you're just, you're just totally, you're just so preoccupied with your own life. I'm not talking about normal self-examination, but I'm talking about you allow the enemy to inflict this shame on you because you, you, you allow yourself to, to keep looking at yourself and looking at your past. Get your eyes off you. Get your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Keep your eyes on him. That's the antidote to shame. Fix your eyes, you know, fix your gaze on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 2, he says this about Jesus. He says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Literally, we could say something like this, that he endured and powered through the shame, as shameful as the shame was that he had to despise and, 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 and go through. But he endured and he took it upon himself. Why? Look what he says. And sat down at the right hand for the joy that lay before him. And I was thinking about this, and it made me, it made me, me very joyful because I, I realized this: that he died for me, he rose for me, he saved, rose for me, he saved me, he healed me, he redeemed me from the curse of the law. Galatians three twenty eight. He broke sin's power over my life. He filled me with the Holy Spirit. He set me apart. He set me up for success. He gave me a hope and a future. But his, he, he, part of his joy, his future joy, as he went through what he went through, was the fact that he knew that he was taking our shame and he was powering through that shame so, so that we could be freed from that shame. And the joy was that he'd have, in fellowship with himself, billions of people like you and me that have been redeemed, forgiven of their sins, and that have been delivered from shame and could stand in company with Jesus and could stand in the presence of God where our heads held high with gratitude and love. And we could, we could turn out in our lives and we can serve other people and we can help somebody else and we can be of use to God in the world and in the kingdom because we're not preoccupied with our shame and we're not worried about our inadequacies and we're not trying to prove anything anymore. We, are, we know who we are in God and Christ and we are free in Jesus' name. If you believe that and if you're grateful, say amen somebody. Look at what he did. He took on himself my shame. So I can hold my head up high. I can live in, in, in faith, not fear. Amen? Yeah. I can walk in confidence, not cowardice. I, I, I've been given a hope in the future, all because he bore my shame. Now, as we talk about Israel's recurrent idolatry, the issues that, that she faced as a nation over and over again, the shame that God spoke over Israel through the prophets, the various encounters Israel had with difficult times, captivities and and raiders, not of the lost ark, but of the various nations who would come and plunder them and all the geopolitical challenges they, that they face as a nation. Still in, in the Old Testament is a word of hope. Because God never shames his people lightly and doesn't want his people to, be, to live in, in shame. We're, we're not, 
even if you're going through something where you're dealing with it, you're not consigned to be that all of your life. And so in Isaiah 61, 7, uh, there's a point where, where, where there's this ray of hope. Aren't you glad for those, those rays of hope? And he says this. He says, in place of your shame, in place. You see, I'm so glad that God, when God gives us, when he, when he, when he pays us back, when he rewards us, it's, it's, it's never just in kind, you know. It's never like a one-to-one thing. He says, in place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share, so they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. Turn to somebody and say, double for your trouble. trouble. You see that? And I I don't know what you're going to, but I I know that some of us in this room today, we've, 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 we've dealt with shame. Some of us, there were things that happened to us as children that never should have happened to us. There were things, shameful things that adults did to us that, we, that they should be ashamed of. They're not, and we are. They were, they, were, they were transferred onto us. There were times when we were not appreciated. There were times in our lives as children maybe that we were, we were, we were, we were, we were labeled and derided. We were talked about and, we, and people talked trash to us. As adults, there were things that we maybe, maybe have made mistakes that cost us a lot and we've tried to move on beyond that. And maybe for some of us it's hard. But if you will look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, if you will dig into God and you will stand tall in his grace, if you'll get grounded in community and allow the grace of God to work in your life, if you'll, if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus and, and really accept the gift of grace and forgiveness in Christ, Understand this, in place of your shame, you will have a double portion. You will have a double portion. So it gets better once you know what you're doing. Once, once, you, once you come to the realization that Christ, in his dying, yes, he died to pay the price for your sins, but he also bore your shame. Remember, you are loved. I was thinking about, you know, Jesus. If you read, like, the book of John, John will say, Jesus was over here with Peter and the disciple that, who Jesus loved. Like, who's that guy? Well, John had this particular special relationship with Jesus, and so he, he refers to himself as, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I kind of wanted the nerve of that guy. Who, who are you? I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Me and Jesus, we had it going on. We were, we were like, I was at a funeral once, and, and the guy was, I know what he was trying to say. He said that the deceased guy's name was Bob. Okay, or Fred, okay. Anybody named Fred here? He said, me and so-and-so, we was like this. I'm like, no, we're supposed to be like that. <laughs> but, but John's like, I'm the disciple. Me and Jesus was like this. Well, that's, and you know, he said, man, John got a big ego, big, big, big head. He thinks he's better than all the rest of the disciples, right? No. He just knows he's loved. And he embraces that love and he relishes that love and he, and he just basks in that love and, he, and he's grateful for that love and he's grateful for that relationship. He's writing about all the other, he knows, that they, I mean, you know, he's not like dissing them or putting them down. But he has a sense that in a very special way, I, in my relationship, I know that Jesus loves me. Well, you know what? I, I want you to start thinking of yourself, not like, you know, the red-headed stepchild. If any of you are red-headed today, don't, don't you know, but don't, don't, you know, stop thinking of yourself as the cast-off, the one who's trying to catch up. Think of yourself as the disciple. Are you a disciple this morning? The Christ follower, the Christian, the believer, the saint, the, 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 that, that Jesus loves. 
Uh, think of yourself as, uh, you know, I want to think of myself as, as Charles. The, I want to think of myself the, the piano playing preacher that Jesus loves. Think of yourself as the one, if, if your name is Susie, and nobody in here named Susie, I hope, I'm Susie, the one, the disciple that Jesus loves. Think of yourself personally and, 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 and specifically the fact that Jesus loves you. And realize that if Jesus loves you and he does love you and if he died for you, you have nothing to be ashamed about, Right? You have nothing to be ashamed of. You, all you need to do is follow Jesus. And, and then I'm almost done, but I was just in closing. I was thinking about the prodigal son. I'm thinking about shaming. When you come to Christ, some of you maybe are, are Christians not as long as others, and maybe in coming to Christ, you, you're, you're leaving your past behind, and, and there's a temptation sometimes to allow the shame from the, your, your former life to overwhelm you. You don't have to do that. When the prodigal son, in, in, in Luke 15, when he came home, it was really interesting because, you know, he's the, he took his, his money, went out, and, and, um, and uh, squandered his wealth. Uh, uh, and the King James says that riotous living, basically partying out there and ended up in a pig farm and good Jewish boys not supposed to be tending pigs, but he was, you know, he fain would have filled his belly with the husk that, the pods that the, that the husk that the pigs ate or whatever. Uh, and he decides to go home, right? And uh, it's like sometimes we just, we, we're out t- to lunch and we decide to get back and sync with Jesus. And, and when he goes to his, comes back to his father, you know, if it was some of us, man, if somebody had wronged us or if there was somebody was out of relationship with us or somebody needed to be reconciled to us when they come back to us, you know what it would be like? We'd be standing with our arms crossed. Uh-huh, knew you'd be back. You see, you ought to be ashamed. You went, yeah, about time. I don't know if I should let you back in here. Yeah, look at you, covered with, with, with pig residue. <laughs> Smelling like a pig, acting like a pig. Look at you. You know, and you know, some of y'all know how to lay it on, don't you? You know how to do it, right? Uh-huh. Come up in here talking with your old pig talking self. Then I just, where, where your money? You ain't got no money left here with, with, with $20,000. You come back here, what you got? You got pockets all hanging out? Uh, look at you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I should let you back in here. Mm-mm-mm. You know how we do? You know, right? But man, the picture of the Father's love in that, in the, in that, in that story. Jewish men, distinguished, accomplished, mature Jewish men, didn't run. Like my dad, he, I, I never saw my dad run. My dad didn't My dad did everything at his own pace. And he, just, and I, and he always had taps on his shoes. And you would always, I could always hear him coming, but he always moved at a very deliberate... Because dignified cats don't run, right? But what does it say when his father saw him coming back? What did he do? He ran to meet him. That, that, his father let go any shame he might have had about the depth of his love. Sometimes we feel shame about loving people, about, about dropping boundaries, and about reaching out to people and not being so the other way, right? And he wraps his arm around the kid and he, he hugs him and he kisses him and basically puts a ring on his finger. That's what grace looks like. It doesn't look like shame. It's like, uh-huh, look what you did. Uh-huh, you ain't forgotten. And you coming back in here, but you're going to be... Because the boy, shame was working in his life. He said, man, just make me a slave. Just make me like a servant. I'll be like, any one of your servants, I just want to be back in the house. And his father said, that's not good enough. 
See, some of you just want to be, a, you just want to be in the house and you just want to kind of, let me just be here. Let me just get some drops of, you know, that fall from heaven or the crumbs off the table. And, and, and Jesus would say, no, that's not, that's not good enough. I didn't die on the cross for you to be a house servant. I didn't die on the cross for you to be some field hand. I didn't die on the cross for you to be a second class citizen in the kingdom of Christ, in the kingdom of God. I died on the cross so that you would be heir to everything, to all the riches and all the wealth of God and everything that God, that is God's would be yours. And so he embraces them and he, they throw a party and he's back in, and he's restored to the fullness of his status as a son in that house. That's the way grace works and that's how God counters our shame. And then finally, David in Psalm 3, about 40 years ago, me and a guy wrote a song about this that actually got a lot of mileage because I read this one day about 40 years ago. I read this verse and I said, to, we, I went to write songs, to do some writing with this guy. I said, I was reading Psalm 3 and we wrote a song about it. Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. And I realized what was happening. David was faced with shame. Shame because his own son, Absalom, had turned on him and was hunting him down. That's shameful, particularly in a, in, in a Hebrew context, in, in an ancient context. You have your own family member, your son, and you're the king. You don't have your kingdom under control. You don't have your household under control. You've got extreme family dysfunction. And he's, he's, he's lamenting that, that issue. He says, wow, my foes are many. And everybody's saying there's no help for you and God. You ever felt like that? That's the devil who tells you that there's no help. God doesn't care about you. He said, but, he, he, but this is in a moment, he says, but you, oh Lord, you're a shield for me. I'm being, I'm being threatened physically by, by harm, but you're a shield and you're my glory. And I love these. You're the lifter of my head. He wants to lift your head up. And the wall of shame, as we conclu- conclude this morning, can be broken down in our lives if we w- would fully accept the grace of God, if we would accept the love and the grace of that one who is the lifter of our heads. And, and don't own your shame. Give it to Jesus. Put it on the altar. Let it go. You don't have to live that way. And it's not God's desire that you live under that, under that cloud of shame, under that shroud of shame, or behind that wall of shame. Allow yourself to be immersed in the love of God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I'm done. All right. I'm done. I'm done. Let's take a moment and pray. And as we do, without calling anybody out or doing anything demonstrative, because I believe the Spirit works both in demonstrative things and in very simple and quiet ways. Uh, This morning, this can be an intensely personal concern and issue in the lives of people. But in the seat where you're sitting, you are able to experience all of the power of God in your life without jumping through hoops or doing anything stupendous, right? And you can leave this place today if shame is an issue in your life. You can leave this place today and begin to live with a new outlook. 